business, leadership, high performance, the journey. Hey everybody, welcome to the show and uh, I'm not even quite sure where to start with today's guest. Uh, I'm extremely humbled, honored to have him on the show today. Um, And I have to say this, first of all, it says so much about a person when you reach out to somebody of his caliber randomly, just in hopes that you might hear something back and they immediately respond back, happy to help you out. So my guest today is a college professor, keynote speaker, best-selling co-author with John Gordon, I might add, um, of the Wall Street bestseller, The Coffee Bean. He's also the author of The Change Agent. And here's the kicker, however. He's also a former college football quarterback that spent over seven years of a life sentence in a Texas maximum security prison. Now, however, he's one of the top speakers in the country, speaking to all the major university athletic programs and teams in the nation. I'm beyond excited today to share his story of addiction, hope, and positively transforming the world around you with all you listeners. So welcome to the show, Damon West. Hey, Patrick. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, man. Look... You know, when you reach out to me and, you know, use social media to do it, you know, look, I, I think it's great because one of the things I do is I reach, I reach out to a lot of people still to this day, especially when I got started doing this. And so I was always excited when someone would respond back or I get a favorable response or even the opportunity to have the conversation even further. So, man, when that happens to me, I love to almost pay that back, maybe pay it forward is the right term for it, but Man, I was thrilled to do it, man. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> yeah, so I I randomly reached out to to Damon on LinkedIn, and like I said, was hoping like ah maybe an assistant or somebody will at least yeah shut it down, you know, and say hey thanks for inquiring. We'll keep it keep it in mind. But yeah, Damon Damon himself shot right back, said hey man, be happy to help you out. Check out my books, cruise through those. Let's talk through through everything. Um, and like I said, I was beyond pumped. Um, just because you, uh. You have a phenomenal story for everybody out there, um, everybody out there between the couple books that you have right now. And I know you're working on another one that um, that uh, comes out shortly here that we'll talk about later. But um, let's really dive into just the beginning, Damon, of kind of where it all started. So bring me back to um, bring me back to Texas um, growing up as a kid. Yeah, I grew up in a town called Port Arthur, Texas, and Port Arthur is down where Louisiana and Texas meet on the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's right there in the corner. I, I came from a great family, too. I mean, I didn't have – I didn't come from a broken home. I tell people all the time, you know, I didn't have uh, issues in the home with, with family. I had an older brother named Brandon, a younger brother named Grayson. Great parental influences, by the way. My father was a sports writer for 50 years, and he was the first sports writer in the part of Texas where we live to put black athletes on the front page of the sports page. The first time it happened was in 1971. And when my dad did that, when he broke the color barrier in 71, uh, people down down here kind of lost their minds with it. A lot of people got really upset with it. I mean, they not kind of, they did. I mean, they broke his windows out. They slid his tires. They sent him a bunch of hate mail. And my father actually saved that hate mail. And growing up, he made my older brother, my younger brother, and I read that hate mail. He wanted, to, he wanted his sons to see what it was like to take a stand and do the right thing. So – I, I, I always trusted. I came from really good people. And, you know, and a lot of where I lived, too, when, when the white fight was going on out of Port Arthur back in the 70s and 80s, when a lot of the white families were moving out, 
my parents dug in their heels and stayed. They wanted their kids to go to integrated schools, and we did. You know, So I grew up in a giant melting pot of a city, which is going to come in handy later on in my story, too. Uh, I had some issues growing up, though. I got into substance abuse at a really young age. When I was 10, I started getting into my dad's beer in the fridge. I liked the way it felt to, you know, to get a buzz on and get drunk. Mm-hmm. And I'd steal my mom's cigarettes. And by the time I was 12, I was smoking pot. And, you know, but the worst part about this is I've got a bad belief system. And, and belief systems tell us how to do things. And if we have a bad one, it tells you how to do something the wrong way over and over again. And, you know, my bad belief system at 10 and 12 years old, so all you're doing is drink a little beer smoke a little pot. You're not hurting anybody. You're not even hurting yourself. But, you know, and I couldn't be more wrong. I had, I had a lot of character issues developing Patrick at a young age, but I could throw a football, man. I could, I, God bless me with a cannon for a right arm. And, man, this is Texas. Texas high school football, well, I mean, it's like a religion. It oh, yeah. really is like a religion Definitely. down here. And so, and everybody goes to worship on Friday nights. You know, that's the, the Friday night lights. There's nothing, nothing farcical about that. That's a real thing. That's a real phenomenon in Texas football. And so, uh, I was a three-year starting quarterback for my 518. Um, I got a scholarship to play ball at the University of North Texas. So now I'm in college playing Division One college football. I'm 20 years old, and I'm the starting quarterback for my college team. But I came up to what I call a fork in the road in life on September 21st, 96, my, my redshirt sophomore year. You know, I take the field against Texas A&M on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, the September of 1996. And by the third play of that game, I went down with a separated shoulder. And I, I, I never played college football again. And when I got up to that fork in the road in life and football was gone, um, my bad belief system kicked in because that's what bad belief systems do. I tell people all the time that, you know, you've got to find the opportunity in adversity. And, and if you don't have the right belief system, then you're never going to see opportunities in adversity. You're going to see negativity. You're going to see uh, the excuses, the reasons why you can't do something, right? You'll see limits that you put on yourself. And when I got up to that fork in the road in life in 96 and football was gone with that bad belief system of doing, you know, drink a little beer, smoke a little pot, that kicked in. But now it it became more serious. I was, you know, doing cocaine, ecstasy pills, and uh, I graduated college somehow in 99. I moved off to Washington, D.C. I got a job working in the United States Congress. And after that, I worked for a guy running for president of the United States, raising money for him all over the country. And in 2004, when he dropped out, of the presidential race, I moved back to Dallas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And it was at that job as a broker that I came up to another very big fork in the road in my life. And one of the guys at work, uh, one of the other brokers, uh, introduced me to methamphetamines one day at work. I was sleeping in the job and told me, you know, you can't sleep on this job. They'll fire you for that. He brought me down to the parking garage and gave me my first hit of meth. I smoked it on a glass pipe. And after that, I mean, I was I was instantly hooked, and, and I couldn't give every, everything away for that drug. And that's what I say, give everything away, because that's what addicts do. We give everything away. We we don't – no one takes anything from an addict. Addicts give it away. We give – you know, I tell people all the time that addicts will give up their, their, their goals, their behaviors. Normal people that aren't addicts, they give up their behaviors to meet their goals, you know. But addicts, we, we just – we're obsessed. We, we have a thing in our brain where we want to do the drugs, and that's where I was, and I gave everything away, my job, my home, my car, my savings account, my tethering to God. And I went from working on Wall Street in 2004 and 2005 to living on the streets of Dallas. I was homeless, and then I was living in, you know, abandoned, you know, living in people's dope houses, sleeping in people's cars, sleeping in, you know, abandoned buildings, and 
started committing property crimes to fund my addiction. And at first it was smaller things like, you know, breaking into cars, breaking into storage units. But it escalated, Patrick, to, to burglaries. And, and, you know, I put together a burglary crew, and we we broke into people's homes for three years. I mean, three years these property crimes go on. And and on July 30th, 2008, after three years of committing property crimes against the people of Dallas County, a Dallas SWAT team put an end to the uptown burglaries. And that was the day they arrested me. Or as I like to tell audiences everywhere I go, July 30th, 2008, Patrick, wasn't just the day I was arrested. That was the day I was rescued. Mm-hmm. God got me out of a uh, situation I could not get myself out of. Yeah, and, and I know, Damon, you mentioned that in the book. Like you said, the day you were arrested, you really consider kind of the day that you were rescued. And and I know one other one other quote that really stuck out in your book, The Change Agent, when I was reading it, was you mentioned how, you know, when you left, I can't remember if it was Texas for D.C. or D.C. coming back to Texas, you mentioned that you you couldn't outrun the problem because you realized that you were the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's it, man. When it's it's whenever you know you you realize that you're the problem. That's uh, you you cannot run it. You got to deal with that at some point. Okay, so so you get arrested. SWAT team comes in, um, and you knew that was coming. Yeah, you know, I I, I had this meth. My meth dealer was with me on the couch in that apartment, and, and I you know I was sitting there smoking meth with him. And I was like, hey, man. Listen, you know, I, I think the, the I think the cops rush can get me. The reason why it was coming though, Patrick, is ten ten days before that, this guy I had been doing all these burgers with, this guy named Dustin, had been picked up by the Dallas Police Department. So they're putting the screws to this guy. I know it's just a matter of time before they get to me. And and I mean, and literally while I was passing the pipe back to Tex, my my meth dealer on the couch, the window shattered off to my right, and a flashbang grenade came tumbling. In. You know, into my living room and smoking on one end. And I mean, like, man, Patrick, I've seen this movie before. I know what's mm-hmm. about to happen. I got up off the couch and trying to get out of the room, and, and the flashbang grenade actually blew up in my face. Man, you know, the bright white light, that loud noise, and blew me back on the couch. And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, there was just cops everywhere, and one of them's got his barrel of his gun in my eye socket, and he's screaming at me, don't move, don't move. And, and I look up at this guy, and I remember blinking. I was like, man, don't worry, don't worry. And then I heard one of the cops scream out, we got him. We got the uptown burglar, you know, the uptown burglar. It was, it's one of those deals, Patrick, that I tell people all the time that you can't escape the consequences of your decisions in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, consequences run with us for the rest of our life. And, and these consequences, you know, it doesn't matter how many people I can possibly impact with this story and, and what I've been able to do. That name, the Uptown Burger, is going to stay with me for the rest of my life. You know, mm-hmm. about a dozen other meth addicts and myself, young and old, male and female, black and white, and everything in between, indiscriminately, without reservation, broke into the homes of dozens of people in the Uptown neighborhood of Dallas to feed our insatiable meth habits. But on July 30th, 2008, the Uptown Burglaries, uh, they came in an and they had their man. They, they arrested me that day, and that became the first day of a long, long incarceration, Patrick. It's something. I had no clue how long I was going to be incarcerated. And to be honest with you, when I first was arrested, the only thing I really cared about was getting high. You know, I wow. I played with that thought for 10 months while I waited to go to trial. Yep. And I thought, you know, and I'm I'm kind of jumping ahead here, Damon, I know, but I thought the one of the craziest parts of your entire story was when you talk about, um, I believe it was Judge Snipes, the guy that actually ends up sentencing you was somebody that you had met was it three, four years previous to that? Almost, I mean, when you were a completely different person. 
And yeah, you know, this is interesting. The judge, the judge knife stuff. And I know. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. <laughs> no, you're good. And I just, I just, you know, the irony of that is so crazy. And then I, you know, and and for those of you, first of all, if you have not read the book, The Change Agent, oh my God, you guys, you have to absolutely read that book. It doesn't matter if you are a business owner, high performer, regular Joe, someone that just likes a unbelievable story. Um, thing is, Damon and I could talk here for hours. I feel like days, probably about about everything in that book and kind of his whole journey but you absolutely have to check that out but um so yeah i mean you end up in court you end up getting sentenced sentence from uh judge snipes who you knew previously a few years before um and and i know when you were i mean sentenced to a, a life sentence 65 years um and then touch touch a little bit damon on i know your parents that moment when you had to leave the courtroom after being sentenced, I know your mom gave you some words of wisdom in particular. Touch on those a little bit. Yeah, you know, and, and the Judge Snipe stuff was, is really interesting. It's funny you bring that up because I was actually, you know, uh, there's a movie being made about the change agent. And I'm talking with the screenwriter this morning, and we're putting together everything for it, uh, you know, with the Lionsgate film and all them. And, you know, there really is a legal thriller throughout a thread throughout the entire movie, and Judge Snipes stuff came up today. And they're like, you know, walk me through the whole story of Snipes. And really interesting. I knew the guy through a mutual friend, and we would drink together sometimes on this guy's yacht. And the last time I saw Snipes before I saw him in a courtroom was his father had passed away in 2004, and I was at, you know, I got invited to a happy hour after work. And, and so it was, you know, basically everybody was there to, kind of cheer Snipes up. And I, I bought Snipes a drink. I bought a round of drinks for everybody that was there. So the last the last memory I had of Mike Snipes was, you know, he went by the name Colonel Snipes. It was before he was a judge. He was a former Fulberg colonel in the JAG in the Army. And I bought Snipes a drink the last time. And I was a real cocky, arrogant little kid back then. And, and so that's the guy that he remembered. And when I saw him, when I walked in that courtroom for the first time, I was like, ugh man because we didn't really get along that well he didn't really care for me too much and i mean honestly with my attitude back then you know i wasn't someone that you could really care for too much so you know but there is that person in life that will always care for you no matter who you are that's your mother and so my mother after the trial is over my mother and father get one last visit with me uh about five minutes and i'm behind the bulletproof glass and so my mom you know she's telling me she's like hey you know damon you, debts in life demand to be paid. She said, you just got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas. She said, but you did the things they said you did at that trial, so you have to go and pay that debt to society. She said, but you owe your father and I a debt, too. She said, Damon, we gave you all the opportunity, love, and support to be anything you wanted to be in life, and that's how you repay us, what we saw in that courtroom. She said, that's not going to work. And She said, we raised you in Port Arthur, Texas, a giant melting pot of the city, and gave you a great moral compass, which you chose to not use she said, so here's the debt you're going to pay. When you go to prison, you will not get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type gangs, because you're scared because you're the minority in there. She said, it's not going to work. She said, you were never raised to see race, and you're not going to start now. She said, you will not get any tattoos while you're inside that prison. And so my mom told me that day, she said, Damon, you know, no gangs, no tattoos. She said, you come back as the man we raised or don't come back at all. And so my mom asked me, she said, do you understand this debt you're going to pay him? Through the tears, so I was crying at that point. I told my mom, I said, yeah, I understand it. And so she, um, you know, but the, here's the deal, though, Patrick. 
I don't understand what I've just promised my parents. You know, I have no clue. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't come from a position of any experience. I'm a white middle-class guy in America. I don't know anything about the penitentiary system. So how can I promise my mom something I know nothing about? And when I got back to the pod in Dallas County Jail, I was asking all the guys that had been in prison before, how am I going to survive? What am I going to do? And every guy I talked to, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and they're telling me the same thing. you got to get into a gang. You can't survive without a gang. You know, mm-hmm. The gang is your family. That's what they keep saying. And, you know, you're going to the worst part of the prison system. Everybody in the building you live on has life. They call it the life sentence building. Man, make your life easy, West, get into a gang. But there was this one guy, this older black man named Mr. Jackson. And Mr. Jackson is probably in his 60s. Uh, he's what you call a career criminal. Been in and out of prison four or five times. But he was the most positive guy I've ever met in my life. You know, and he... Uh, he walked around prison all the time, Patrick, with a smile on his face, man. You couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't knock a smile off his face. This guy was just so positive. And one morning he came up to me, and he said, Wes, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and these dummies talking about you got to get into a game. He said, man, don't listen to these fools. He said, but let me, let me tell you what prison is going to be like. He said, let me lace you up. So he's telling me, he said, the first thing you need to understand about prison is prison is all about race. He said, you know, because it's about race, he said, you're going to have to fight the white gangs first. And after that, then you're going to fight the black gangs if you want to be on your own. And he tells me that, you know, you can survive this. You can survive what you're about to go through because he said, you know, the strongest man in prison always walks alone. Mm -hmm. And he tells me that day something that becomes a mantra in my life. And he says, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. Um, and so and, that became like a lesson in my life. Yeah. And those of you that have not read the book, when you, when you read through this section of the book where you're, where you're talking about Mr. Jackson and the relationship and how he's really mentoring you of, of what to expect you actually, I mean, Damon, it was like, I was actually sitting there in the cell with you guys as part of that conversation. Um, it's, it's written so well and, and literally the whole book too, it like pulls you in to the situation. I don't know if I've ever read a book truly where it's like my stomach was doing like flips throughout the book because you literally feel like you are living it um, as you go through all of these scenarios. Oh, wow. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. You know, I was so, I was so nervous when I wrote that book because I've never (laughs) written anything before. Literally the week before the book came out, I was trying to convince my wife to let me call the publisher and you know, stop the presses because I just, <laughs> I was like, nobody's going to like my book. She's like, damn, they're going to love it. You know, but I've never, you know, I've never been, you know, you know, criticized as a writer or even been viewed as a writer. So thank you for saying that. That makes me feel better. Yeah. So this, so this Mr. Jackson, I mean, he starts telling you about all the things to expect, uh, the gangs, who's going to fight you. So I, I cut you off there. Go on, man. Yeah. So that's what he's telling me. You know, you're going to fight the white gangs first and, then they said after that, then you're going to fight the, the black gangs. And he said, but if you survive all that, you'll earn the right to walk alone. You know, and he's yelling, telling me this, and he's telling me, you know, you don't, one of the biggest things he told me is that you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. And that's, a, that's such a huge and important lesson for us to remember, especially when you look at a year like 2020. You know, we're coming to a close on this year, Patrick, but I don't think it, 2020 – was easy on anybody. I mm-hmm. think that it was, you know, one of the hardest years on record. No one alive has ever lived through a pandemic like this before. And so no one could tell you what was going to happen next. But, you know, but it's the knowledge that, hey, you know, your fights, you're going to lose some of your fights. And, 
but you got to get up and keep fighting. And that's really the, the main point of that. You know, you can't just stay down on the ground. You got to get up and keep going. You got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And um, Jackson, though, when he's telling me this stuff, he can see that, that I'm like a deer in headlights. I'm frozen, paralyzed with fear. Uh, oh, excuse me, sorry. And so he tells me, he said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, anything we put in that pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I want to put three things in that pot of boiling water and watch how they change. You know, a carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. And so he said the first, you know, he walked me through it. He said, if I put a carrot in that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, what happens to the carrot? And I said, well, the carrot turns soft. He said, that's right. He said, the carrot goes into prison hard, but the water, the prison, changes the carrot, turns it soft. He said, the carrot got beat, got robbed, got raped, and he may got killed. He said, you don't want to be the carrot. And, he, and then he said, we said, what about the egg? And I said, well, the egg turned hard, Mr. Jackson, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, that's right. He said, the egg has a shell that protects it physically, but inside that shell, that soft liquid core, his heart becomes hardened. He said, now, if your heart becomes hardened, you're incapable of giving or receiving love. And he said, if you're incapable of giving or receiving love, you have become institutionalized, and you will not come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell will have swastikas tattooed all over it. Mm -hmm. And that's when he asked me. He said, what about the coffee bean? And literally, I had no clue. I, I didn't know what happened to a coffee bean in a pot of boiling water. And that's when he told me, if I, he said, if I put a coffee bean into that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, now you got to change the name of the water to coffee. Because he said, the coffee bean, the smallest of these three things, he said, small like you, West, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot. He said, everybody in life puts out energy, negative or positive. And he said, whatever kind of energy you put out, you attract back. It's called the law of attraction, and it works. He said, so if you walk around prison with a, you know, with a mean mug on your face and a frown all the time, you want to try to look hard? He said, what you're going to do is attract the hardest in, kind of inmates, the hardest kind of negative people into your life. And he said, well, you're going to the life in this building. That could be a very dangerous, even deadly endeavor. He said, but Wes, if you walk around that prison with a smile on your face and you let those guys know they're not getting to you, no matter what they do, they can't get to you. He said, man, you'll change that prison from the inside out. And he said, the best part about it is the other coffee beans in prison, the other positive inmates, they'll find you because of your energy. And the last thing Mr. Jackson told me before I got on that prison bus in, in August of 2009 to be shipped off to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, you know, he told me, he said, West, go out there and go be a coffee bean. You know, be a coffee bean, Patrick. If this guy was shooting me straight. This old man was shooting me straight. That meant that the power was inside me. The power wasn't inside the hands of the criminal justice. It wasn't in the hands of the, the guards. It wasn't in the hands of the other inmates. The power is inside me, just like it's inside that coffee bean. And if the power's inside me, truly inside me, that means no matter what environment I'm in, even a maximum security prison, that, that I, I can not only survive that, I can also thrive in that environment. And so that was the lesson I took with me. And look, I mean, prison, you read the book, man. Prison was as hot of a pot of boiling water as one could ever be dropped in. It's the hardest <laughs> thing I've ever been through in my life. That, that's an absolute understatement um, from reading the book. I mean, it's... When, when you read the book, you're absolutely terrified, I mean, of the stories that you have in there, I mean, of what actually goes down, and it's just constant. It's day after day. It's literally like survival by the minute, by the hour and such. And I want to come to that, Damon, but before we get there, I want to actually, I want to touch on the coffee bean message a little bit because I want to veer off in a direction quick because you ended up writing eventually 
the coffee bean with John Gordon. I yeah. mean, really covering yeah, this absolutely. entire message. So talk, talk, talk real briefly, Damon, about just touch on that experience working with John Gordon. I mean, man, I've been a John Gordon fan forever from, um, I mean, win the locker room first energy bus is one of my favorites. I mean, John, John is such an inspirational, positive, um, influence, I think to so many people. What was it like diving into that endeavor and project with John to write that book? You know, what's really cool about that is, is hang on, sorry, my, my computer jumped on. Okay. So what was really cool about that is how, how John and I even met. So you got to take it back to January of 2017. I'm working at this law firm in Beaumont and I get a, get a call from a buddy of mine named Mike Order. Mike Order works at one of the, the big, the big CVS station in Houston, which is 90 miles away. And he knows that I want to get in front of college football programs and speak to college teams. But look, man, I'm fresh out of prison. I don't have any access to college coaches. But he says that he calls me that day. He says, listen, he said, the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award is, is in Houston tonight. They're going to name the best coach of college football. The eight best coaches in the country are there. He said, I got an extra press pass. I'll sneak you in. Do you want to go? And Patrick, of course I want to go, man. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't have any other opportunity to meet these coaches. So I drive the 90 miles to Houston after work. I, I get to the Toyota Center. He sneaks me in, and I hit the ground running. And I'm meeting every – I mean, USC, Penn State, you know, Wisconsin, P.J. Fleck, all these coaches are there, man. And I'm getting to meet them and, and shake their hands. And every one of these coaches that I meet is telling me no. One after the other is telling me no, you know. And I'm seven to eight coaches down. I'm in the corner of the Toyota Center, and I'm licking my way. I'm feeling so sorry for myself. And I start telling myself, Damon, just go home. You know, just go home. The last coach, he's going to tell you no. And he's the most in-demand coach there. Patrick, they just won the national championship, you know, two nights before. Mm-hmm. So everybody wants a piece of this guy's time. So I'm, I'm telling myself, go home, you know, just, just throw in the towel. But then, then I'm like, wait a second. Hey, you want to be a motivational speaker. What kind of motivational speaker just quits? And, and you know, you survived prison. You survived way worse than that. And I was like, you know what? That guy's going to tell you no to your face. You know, you're, you're not leaving until he tells you no to your face. So I stalked Dabo Swing throughout <laughs> the room that night. And I waited for my opportunity, and I pounce on Dabo. And I've got Dabo up against the wall. He can't go anywhere. And I'm giving him 10 minutes of conversation inside of one minute, my little elevator pitch, and it's terrible. And to this day, Dabo will tell you, it was like getting a drink of water from a fire hydrant. I mean, I'm just going 90 miles an hour. And at the end of this terrible elevator pitch, Dabo's like, you know, he's like, hey, you got a card on you or something? So I give him my card. He said, thanks, we'll be in touch. And he takes off. And I'm like, oh, man, you know. Another another no. I mean, that's that's what it's felt like all night. But I went home and I slept like a baby, Patrick, because we always tell athletes to leave it all on the field. Mm-hmm. Not just athletes, but people in general in life. You know, you want to try to make every effort you can to make something happen. But if it doesn't happen after that, you did everything you could. It's okay. Yep. You, you did your best. So I go home and sleep like a baby. Forget about that night. Four months later, I get an email from the director of football operations at Clemson University, a guy named Mike Dooley. And he said, hey, Damon, it's Mike Dooley. He said, uh, Coach Sweeney said he met you at an awards show in Houston. He would love to have you come talk to the team. Do you have August 1st open? And I'm wow. like, Mike, man, do I, I got every first open, dude. I can come <laughs> talk anytime you want, yeah. man. No kidding. You know, just so August 1st, 2017, I go talk to, to the Clemson Tigers, the defending national champions of college football. And when I get done with this presentation, Dabo's got me up against the wall now. He's like, Damon, most amazing story I've ever heard in my life. He said, I've never. See my players respond like that. 
to a speaker. He said, I've never seen him ask questions like that. He said, we had to shut Q&A down. Never had that before. <laughs> he said, have you been to Alabama yet? And I'm like, no, Dabo, I've been to Clemson, dude. I mean, how am I going to go to Alabama? I've, I, I've been to Clemson. I met you. He said, well, we'll see about that. He said, I just, I just text Nick Saban from the back of the room and told him what I was witnessing. And, and when I landed in Houston the next morning, I had a voicemail and a text message from the director of football operations at the University of Alabama. And he said, hey, Dabo called. We'll see you in Tuscaloosa in three weeks. You're on. Wow. So just like that, you know, Nick Saban's brought me in. Now, Dabo Sweeney's kicked the door open to college football. But one year later, to get to the story we're talking about, Patrick, one year later, August 1st, and, and not August 1st, but August of 2018, I'm at my desk at work at that law firm again, and my phone rings. And on the other end of my phone is this guy named John Gordon. John Gordon. Now, look, man, I'm like you. I follow John Gordon. I know John Gordon's books. I mean, you know, this is the energy bus guy, Patrick. I mean, mm-hmm. this is – he sold 4 million books, and he's on <laughs> my phone. And so I'm like, or, or is he? So I was like, hey, John, if you're really John Gordon, how do you know who – how do you know who I am, man? How would you get my number? And he said, Dabo Swinney. He said, Dabo Swinney. He, he, he said, I was just in Dabo's office. I just talked to the team. And all Dabo could do is talk about you in that coffee bean store. And he said, Damon – he said, let's write a book. He said, this, he said this in 2018, Patrick. He said, the world needs the coffee bean message, Damon. That's what God told me. He said, God told me to call you and write this book with you. He said, let's do a book. It'll be a bestseller. He said, you know, we'll go in 50-50, Damon. So, Patrick, I'm like, I couldn't talk John out of it. I even told John, John, go write <laughs> the book yourself, man. You're John Gordon. You don't need me. And he said, Damon, it only works if we do it together. That's my deal. Awesome. And so we did. And the book became a bestseller. Um, you know, we went back and forth. I think it took two weeks to write the entire book before we had it down. And I, you know, it's just one of those things, though. It, it was. It's got to be driven by God. One of those God things. Because mm-hmm. how in the world? I mean, look, I just celebrated last week walking out of prison for five five years ago. You know, five years ago in one week, I walked out of a maximum security prison on parole for the rest of my life. You know, and inside of that time. One of the things I've been able to do is write a best-selling book that brings so many people hope and explains the world to them in a different way through this allegory that was given to me by an old convict in Dallas County Jail that probably thought, you know, I was about to go into this machine with teeth and be devoured by it because, you know, Jackson even told me. I asked him. I asked Jackson in Dallas County Jail when he was telling me about the carrot egg and the coffee. I said, Mr. Jackson, what do you find more of in jail, in prison? And he fired back real quick at me, and he said, eggs. He said, the egg is a natural evolution of a human being in the environment you're about to go into, and you will probably become an egg, too. But I would love to be able to find that guy now, Patrick and and, and Mr. Jackson, and explain to him my story and tell tell him how much that coffee bean message helped me. But but I don't. I don't know how to I don't know how to find him. You know, Mr. Jackson never got his real name. He went by the he went by the name Muhammad. He's one of those guys. You know, these black guys go in there and they convert to Islam while they're in there. Most and I say black, mostly black guys are the ones that convert to Islam while they're in there. And when they do, they give up what's called their government name. And his government mm-hmm. name would be, you know, well, my government name would be Damon West. That's my government name. His, you know, who knows what his government name was? He never told me, and I never asked. But they changed it to a Muslim name. You know, and just think back to Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay yep. becomes Muhammad Ali. Yep. So he, his name was also Muhammad, the guy that I call Mr. Jackson. But, look, I live in the South, and I know that when I get out of prison, I'm going to start sharing my story 
where I live. And I thought, well, you know, instead of me going around telling everybody Muhammad told me this and Muhammad told me that, I was like, let me change this guy's name to make him more palatable yeah. because I don't want the message to be lost because of the messenger. Yeah, and I know the the message in the coffee bean, man, as I read that book, all I could think about, Damon, was um, I was actually a teacher. I was a teacher for over 11 years, longtime football coach. Um, so football was a huge part of my life once upon a time. Still love the game. Uh, still teaching in what I'm doing now, I mean, as I'm going in working with businesses, leaders, and such. But, man, I thought that is a book that needs to be in every single kid's hand, every athletic team's, uh, their team member's hands, every coach's hand, because it is it is such a powerful message of just positivity in how you approach everything in life. Um, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think that's kind of happening right now, too, to be honest with you. I mean, just to watch it, how it's gone down um, around the country. I mean, so many groups and teams and organizations are getting that book and making it a team read. I, you know, mm-hmm. I hear, I mean, just going by what I hear from social media and people reaching out, uh, it's become a very popular book, a very go-to book for groups, teams. And I'm, it's all about all sports, man, women's sports, men's sports, you know, companies of all sizes. I mean, it's, it's, I've seen it from everything from a little league baseball team having everybody read the book all the way to the 500 executives that run Walmart. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's just, it's a good book for everybody. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Check that out. Um, everybody listening, if you have not checked out the coffee bean, fantastic read, uh, super, super quick too. But um, so bring us back to prison then, because I know um, I was blown away by your story of when you actually step foot in prison I mean, Mr. Jackson had warned you about the things that were going to happen. He told you this was going to happen. This was going to happen. Walk us through kind of your very first moments and thoughts of when you actually stepped foot onto that prison block for the first time. Man, you know, he was so spot on with everything. We were. I was talking about this with the screenwriters, too, about just how prescient he was. But he's been in that environment before. It was very prophetic. He told me, he said, when you walk into prison you're going to be approached by a white guy first. He said, now, don't worry about this first guy. The first guy is not coming to hurt you. He's coming to he's coming to understand you. He said, you're a new face on the block. they got to figure out who you are. But that guy is going to be a white guy. He's going to want to know what family you're riding with, what gang. They call gangs families, and a gang's not a family. Patrick, I mean, let's just get that out there. Now, that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not even the reality, but that's the, that's the lie they tell you in there. And so he, he said, that guy's going to want to know what gang you're riding with. He said, get this guy out of your face as fast as you can and get ready because the second guy that comes up to you, he's the one you got to worry about. He's not coming to talk to you. He's coming to hurt you. He said, when that guy gets within range, he said, put your fist in his mouth. He said, just beat him to the punch and get that first lick in. And he said, get ready to go. And, and so he made me understand that, you know, prison was going to be a very rough ride at first. And, and it was. I mean, it, look – I mean, you read the book, The Change It, and you realize that you're like, wow, this is like a baptism of fire. And it was, everything Jackson said happened. I mean, literally, I walk into to prison, and it's this little bitty white guy. He's tatted up from head to toe, and he's got, you know, he's got tattoos all over his face, over his eyelids and everything are tattooed. And, you know, he comes up, and, he, you know, he's asking me, he's like, hey, what, you know, hey, white boy, what family you riding with? What gang are you going to ride with? And, and I'm like, man, look, you know, just get out of my face, man. I'm riding with God. Please leave me alone. And he laughed at me. You know, he told me, he said, you know, God isn't here. He said, but we're here and we're coming to get you. And so 
I'm watching and I'm waiting, and maybe 10 minutes later, here he comes, man. This is the biggest white dude I've ever seen in my life. And he's coming down the stairwell on the right side of the pod. And, man, when he got within range, I hit this guy as hard as I could, Patrick. And, I mean, 20 seconds later, my first fight in prison was over because that dude had me on the ground beating the hell out of me. I mean, it took the hardest hit that I could give this guy, and it didn't even make him flinch. I mean, it didn't even stun him, didn't even stop him. Wow. And that was my baptism in the prison. That was my entrance into, into prison. It was literally the prison was the hardest thing in the world. You know, and I, I get up every day, and it's like Jackson said, you don't have to win all your fights, but you have to fight all your fights. I'd get up and know that I was going to lose, you know, and I just, but you have to keep going. There, there were days that I didn't leave the cell, days that I stayed in my cell. I stayed in my bunk because I just didn't feel like fighting. And I, and I just would stay there and just not have to deal with the world out there, but you can't stay in your bunk forever, you know. You got to get out and face life. So it was tough. I don't know. I don't try to sugarcoat it with anybody, but I like to tell the stories because I think that people, you know, that helps people understand that they can get through whatever they're going through as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you ended up, I mean, man, we could go on and on about all the experiences in prison. I mean, from the, the shower incident, I mean, where you were literally warned that you're going to have to kill a guy in order to just merely survive in there. I mean, to the kind of mentors that you found in, um, I love this story surrounding Tommy and Winston. These, these two older guys that really kind of almost took you under their wing. Um, you know, when you describe Tommy in the story, the, the old mobster with the darkened glasses and such, it's oh, like, yeah. man, you can, you can just see that guy and feel the vibe that that guy has in your story, um, which is pretty cool. But I mean, so you, you end up spending seven years in prison. I mean, how, how did the prison journey come to an end? You know, it's crazy because whenever I was in prison, I thought the only way out of prison was going to be for me to win my case, to win my appeal, mm -hmm. to fight them in the courts because I was trying to overturn that monstrous sentence that I have. I got 65 years, you know, for nonviolent property crimes around meth. So I thought for sure I'll have to overturn the sentence before I walk out and you know, man plans and God laughs, Patrick. I um, I went to see the parole board. I think it was like March 25th, 2015. I get called in to see parole. And I know for the parole board is going to come see me at some point soon. And so I went in there and I met with the, the parole lady. And she's not the voter, but she's the one that's going to hand the file off to They got three voters on the panel. And you've got to get a majority of the three voters. You've got to get two of the three votes. The first vote's really the most important one. That's your lead voter. This woman is there to interview me to hand off the file to the lead voter. And so she's interviewing me that day. And she looks at my file for a couple minutes, asks me a few questions, and closes my file. And she says, look, Mr. West, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot you straight here. We don't see a lot of people come through prison like you. There's not a lot of Damon West. We don't see it because you had all the opportunities in life, every advantage, every privilege, you know, all this education and your work experience. She said, you just, you don't see a lot of people like that in state prison. Then you became a, a drug addict. You became, <coughs> <coughs> sorry, Patrick. Sorry. I was no, you're good. She said, she said, then you became, then you became a drug addict and you became a criminal and you met a lot of victims and the jury gave you a life in prison. She said, but instead of letting that license define you, you came to this prison and you changed yourself. She said, as a matter of fact, you changed the entire prison around you. She said, I, I really got one question for you today. She said, if you could be remembered for being anything in this life, 
she said, give it to me in just one word, go. And man, you know, Patrick, you talk about an easy question for a coffee bean answer. I had, man, I had her answer ready to go. And I fired it back at her real quick. And I said, useful, ma'am. I just want to be useful. And I can be useful in this prison. Or I can be useful out in that world finding those coffee beans. And they let me go that day. Tommy, I mean, uh, Patrick, they let me go. And I, I got to say goodbye to Tommy and, and Winston and all those guys. And they let me go. And, and that, you know, she, they basically told me, look, you know, we're going to give you one shot to get this right. But if you come back in handcuffs anywhere between now and 2073, she said, we'll keep you this time until 2073. So I'm on parole for the rest of my life. But I got to walk out of a maximum security prison, you know, after seven years and three months on a lifetime of parole. I mean, I'm the luckiest guy in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So my, my stay in prison was cut short uh, dramatically, and it was something that was totally unanticipated. I didn't have any expectations um, of making parole that day. I mean, I didn't think for sure they were going to give me a parole in my first chance in the lifetime. I thought I would do 10 or 15 years, but I yep. did seven years and three months instead. And I, and I know, Damon, before before you even got paroled, um, I really enjoyed this section of the book where you where you had the conversation with the warden, and you really kind of had had explained how you had come to a realization of you really stopped looking at your life sentence as punishment, but really more instead of an opportunity. That's right. You know, be right. because no, it, I think that, go ahead. Whoop, I was just going to say, because I think so many people struggle with the negativity and the challenges in life and they think of things as punishment, you know, and, and prison is obviously the most severe case, but you know, I think, especially like you mentioned with 2020 here, I think so many people fail to see the silver lining and look for the opportunity, the good, the positivity in, in so many things out there. Yeah, I mean, so much about how we handle something is our, is our mindset about it. You know, we, our mindset determines everything. And, and I had an inmate, uh, a cellmate. I mean, a cellmate, you know, my first cellmate in prison, the guy named Carlos. And Carlos explains to me that, you know, you have to quit looking at prison as a punishment and start looking at prison as an opportunity if you want to, if you want to become that coffee bean. So I did, you know, I started looking at prison as an opportunity and, and, you know, I found, I found that if I got up every single day and I was grateful for the, you know, to start my day out and grateful to get going to work on myself and prison was an opportunity. And so that was, you know, changing my mindset was the first big part of becoming that coffee bean, but it's something that you got to repeat over and over throughout the day, you know, I tell people all the time that, you know, having a bad day, that's a choice. You have to choose that about because any time of the day, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock at night, you can start your day all over again. You know, you don't, you can stop your day and say, Hey, you know what? I don't have to live like this and, and take a deep breath and start your day over. And, and I, and I do that so much. And I think that people get so caught up in having, the repetitive bad days that becomes, you know, like almost like we talked about earlier, like a belief system. You you mm -hmm. believe that your life is bad, your life is bad. You believe your life is great and blessed and, and you have a lot of gratitude and your life is, is wonderful. I have a tremendous amount of perspective, I'll say, in life, Patrick. I know what a bad day looks like. And every day that I don't wake up and my feet don't hit the concrete, every day that I wake up, and my feet don't hit the concrete floor of a cold prison cell, then I'm having a pretty good day. Yeah. So 
And that's and, the way I look at life. And as you mentioned, position de- really determines your perspective. It does. I love those three words together. Position determines perspective because it does. Yeah, and I know, and I know you mentioned that numerous times throughout the book, which I love at such at such key points in your story. And you know, another thing I I love that you mentioned is most people are really imprisoned by their thoughts in life more than anything physically. You know, and that and that's a realization only when you that you can really only come to when you've seen the worst of the worst physically. Yeah, you know, that's but people do become prisoners. I meet more people out here in the free world, Patrick, that are locked up than I ever did when I was in prison. <laughs> I know, believe more it. More people are imprisoned by their thoughts. Oh, yeah. More people are imprisoned by their thoughts and by their things than by steel bars and barbed wire and concrete. And that's it. And look, you don't have to take my word for it just as a guy that has, you know, lived almost 10 years in the maximum security prison. You don't have to take it for that. You can take it from the perspective of this other part of me that is a, you know, that went back and got my master's in criminal justice when I got out of prison. And I'm a criminal justice professor now at the University of Houston. Hell, I teach a class, Patrick, called <laughs> Prisons in America. I mean, I'm a college professor teaching prisons in America at one of the biggest universities in the country. And, so, and, and I can tell you with authority that I know what the toughest prison in this country, the hardest place to do time in the United States of America is the prison in your mind. Mm-hmm. Because I, I meet more people out here that are locked up than I ever did when I was in there because more people are imprisoned by their thoughts and by their things, than by steel bars and barbed wire and concrete, Patrick. Wow. I I 100% agree with you. I think that is so, so true. And I think a lot of people really, truly struggle yeah. with that. I mean, I do think there's a lot of mental health issues out there, especially um, that that really, really hold people back. I mean, from, from taking risks, from taking challenges, but really just from finding fulfillment and happiness, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's what you define that it's what you define as something that can make you happy. What, what do you put your value in life? What do you put, you know, what are your priorities in life? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you put your value, your identity, your self-worth into things like material things, things that can be taken from you in a, in a pandemic or an economic downturn or even a prison sentence, then you're destined for a lot of bad days. You're, you're going to have, uh, you're setting yourself up for failure mm-hmm. today my identity, my value, my self-worth is just, it's three simple things. One is my faith. Two is my relationships I've built along the way in life. And three is in my, my ability to serve other people. You know, there's no, there's no pandemic, no economic downturn, no prison sentence that can take away one of those three things. And I know this for a fact because I walked out of prison with nothing but those three things. That's all I had. So I know for sure that you can live a life of fulfillment with, you know, ideals like that in mind got in your life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so you end up, I mean, you end up getting paroled, but that wasn't the end. You had, was it six more months to, I mean, one more test really for that next six months when you went back to County, correct? No, I had to go to this. Yeah. I went six months back to this thing called the in-prison therapeutic community. Yep. What it was, it's a drug treatment center that they send you to. It's really a behavior modification um, and basically what it is, it's a, it's a minimum security prison. I mean, the gate there, you could climb over the fence if you wanted to. And they have people there like me that had life sentences that are, you know, you're six months out from going home and they give you these rules when you get there, the cardinal rules. One of them is, you know, no game. Another one is no, you know, no gambling, but the cardinal rule of no fighting, man, no fighting. Patrick, when they take fighting off the table in prison, I mean, here's the deal. 
and whether this sounds right or not, this is the reality, so there's no way to PC this thing, violence or the threat of violence is the glue that holds prison together. And I'll say it again, violence or the threat of violence is the glue that holds prison together. You know, that right there alone keeps people from doing or behaving ways that would cause problems to other people, you know, mm -hmm. because when you're in prison, you know that there's a consequence to everything you do. And if you, if your behavior goes outside of the norms and you violate those rules, then, you know, there's a violent, you know, there's a violent consequence to your decisions. And so that's really a glue that holds it again. But when you get to this six month program, fighting's off the table. That means that the smallest guy in prison is now the biggest guy in prison. The mm -hmm. smallest guy in prison, by the way, that has been picked on and abused and assaulted, you know, the entire time he's been there, now he's got the upper hand. Now he's got the power to make you miserable by disrespecting you. And, and I mean, and there's nothing you can do about it. But really, it's kind of brilliant what they're doing. What they're doing is they're detoxing you from prison. Prison's very toxic. Yeah, I love that. And I love that, that phrase that you use. It's like prison detox. That final yeah, test. Yeah, because prison's a toxic place. And so they're doing this to let you understand that you can't just beat the, the hell out of the problems that you have in life. Somebody bothers you or gets on your nerves, that's going to happen. That's good. You know what? We're guaranteeing that's going to happen. And we know so much so that we're going to make sure it happens to you while you're here. And so and that's really what they're doing there, that six-month program. It was tough, though. I mean, I tell you, it's, you know, it was the hardest six months I've ever done. Prison without the rules governing it with violence is, is a tough way to do time. Wow. And I know um, I'm going to let our listeners actually dive into your book and read about kind of the last test that you had in prison because it was it was something else. It was actually fairly comical, kind of what you had to almost resort to to make sure that you were going to get out of there um, and not end up going back to prison. Oh, so so I'm going to kind of leave that piece as kind of uh, as, a, as a tidbit that people are going to want to dive into. But um, Damon, I know we only have a couple minutes here left. So, um, as you know, as I've mentioned throughout, absolutely everybody, man, you have to read the change agent. You have to read the coffee bean, but I want to finish by touching on kind of your next big project that you have going on. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So during the pandemic, John and I were talking about, Hey, you know, how do we bring the coffee bean message out to more people? And then it dawned on his kids, you know, kids, we need to bring it out to kids. So we took the Coffee Bean book that became a bestseller and said, hey, let's adapt it for kids. And so now we've got a book called The Coffee Bean for Kids, which is, you know, of all the things I've, I've been a part of, it's probably the thing I'm the most proud of because this book has got kids from all different groups. I mean, the, the main character of the book is a little Hispanic boy named Gavin. Gavin's just moved to a new town. He's a fourth grader. It's tough. School is tough. And. You know, his teacher, Miss Spring, gives him the coffee bean message one day when she sees that he's struggling at school. And, you know, he takes the coffee bean and he starts becoming positive. And, you know, in Gavin's friend circle that he's going to make, because Gavin becomes positive and other coffee beans are attracted to him, there's a boy that there's a student with, with special needs named Michael who's autistic. There's a, a little girl named Clara that befriends him and brings Gavin into her friend circle. And in Clara's little friend circle, you know, a little black girl named Maya, a little girl from India named Priya, a little Asian boy named Peter. And, and then, you know, you go into the classroom, and this classroom looks like America, man. And all these kids, there's even a kid that's in a wheelchair 
Patrick, because we want every kid from all different backgrounds to see themselves in this book. And, mm -hmm. and in this book, these kids get together and they decide that they have the power to make their school a better place. And they form a coffee bean club. And in that coffee bean club, they establish rules, rules like be kind, you know, always be kind to other people. Smile because your smile can affect the, you know, can affect the room around you and the people around you with positivity. Rules that we would really need adults to kind of practice these days, you know. So it, it, it's just really been a neat project to get on with John and, and work on, on bringing the coffee message down to a kid's level because that was, you know, kind of the the challenge was. Going into an elementary school, bringing the coffee bean in there, you could read the first 39 pages, but that's about it that kids would understand. But what if every kid grew up knowing about the coffee bean and could apply mm -hmm. that? You know, life suddenly isn't as hard for you because little kids can understand the concept of being a coffee bean. Yep. What? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know I, lo I look forward to reading it. I know while I was reading your first coffee bean, uh, the original book, you know, I thought of my daughter, who's almost four, of like sharing that message with her of just of just positivity, you know, to really begin with, even at even at that young of an age. But what uh, what do we expect for a release date on that book? December 3rd, December two weeks 3rd. from tomorrow, December 3rd, as we're recording yep. this. Awesome. It is, it is coming up, man. And then movie was something I was not aware of. So you said Lionsgate is working on the change agent movie. Yes, they're working on the movie. Uh, you know, COVID shut a lot of things down in Hollywood, so we got further behind on that than anybody really wanted to be. But uh, we're we're back working on it now. I don't know when the release is going to come of that. We don't even have the, the have it sold, but it's going to be like a ten part uh, series. Uh, one of those series that you know you see on Netflix, Hulu, HBO. Um, like a 10 part limited series kind of deal. So it won't be a movie. It'll be a, ten, it'll be a 10 hour deal. Wow. Awesome. Oh, I can't wait to see that. Well, Damon, yeah. I can't. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, Damon, I absolutely can't thank you enough for hopping on here. Um, phenomenal message today around everything from hope to positive mindset to um, fighting the fights that, that we all truly have, have to fight. And um, where can our listeners find find and follow you, Damon? Uh, social media at Damon West Seven at Damon West Seven on Twitter on Instagram. Uh, that's where you can find me. And, you know, and, and my website DamonWest.org is a great place to find stuff out about me. You know, I, I also want to tell you thank you, um, thank you, Patrick, for taking the time to read the Change Agent. Absolutely, you made this interview a lot better than what it could have been because me getting on there and just telling my story that's one thing but you've read the book and you had good questions great questions to ask actually and, and i want to thank you for that because you put in the work and it's what i tell people all the time and you got to put in the work you know you get out what you put in in life so thank you for making this a better interview yeah you bet you bet and, and right back at you man um i greatly appreciate you hopping on here and to all, to all the listeners, absolutely check out those books, The Change Agent, um, The Coffee Bean, uh, The Coffee Bean for Kids. That comes out December 3rd. Absolutely be sure you check that out. And uh, with that, don't forget to follow me, everybody, on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook at Patrick Metzger Coaching. I uh, want to thank everybody for listening, tuning into this episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate the podcast. 
As always, show notes uh, for today can be found on my website at patrick-metzger.com. And lastly, uh, take a screenshot of today's show. Tag myself, tag Damon, share it with somebody that really needs uh, today's message of hope and positivity and, uh, and and never quitting. So until next time, I want to remind you to own you and the journey.